Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. It's a bold new world we live in, and as we've been talking for several weeks now, it is going to require a brave new church, and we've talked about a number of different social issues facing our world today, and this morning uh, we turn our attention to the issues that involve the women of our world. You know, long before the 60s and as far back as even the turn of the century, a new vision of womanhood was being inspired in the hearts and in the minds of a few social radicals. And over this last uh, 50, 60 years, it has slowly made its way in an idea form into the actual lifestyles of mainstream America. What used to be just the radical ideas of a few are now the applications of life by the many. And as this tidal wave of bold new images for women has rolled down through the halls of our society, it has really spawned a great deal of debate. Uh, as you know, it has spawned demonstrations and marches and lawsuits, countless social experiments, reinterpretations of history and science, and numerous challenges to all kinds of social institutions in our world today, including our government, our schools, and yes, even the church. But most of all, these tremendous changes in the ideology of womanhood has brought change to women. It has brought change in the way women perceive themselves. It has brought change in the choices that they make and how they go about making them. And it has, in many ways, given them a broad range of new freedoms. Now, I want you to know that the merits and demerits of all of this social upheaval and change could be debated for hours in our church, and we could talk about it from numerous quarters. But for our purposes this morning, and, uh, and in a second message that I intend to preach two weeks from now, I would like to set forth what I think is a context for helping you women in our church answer two very critical and crucial questions for your life that I believe are extremely relevant. Questions that bring the new perspectives that women have of themselves and the new freedoms and choices that are now offered to them into direct contact with their faith in God, with their belief in the Bible, and with their view of this church. So those are critical questions to answer, aren't they? These two questions, are, of course, are found on your outline. The first is this. As a woman, does God have an essential feminine calling over my life? And if He does, what is it? A calling that would shape a woman's life direction to some degree. A calling that would restrain perhaps some of your choices with His command. A call that would redefine for women the word freedom. Because freedom means different things to different people. As a woman, does God have an essential feminine calling, a vision for my life? A second question is this. As a woman, what can I do in the church? Is everything open to me or are there restrictions? You know, not a discovery class goes by that we don't, uh, or at least that I don't have, some newcomer coming into our church ask me the question, can women be elders here? Uh, can women be pastors uh, are they allowed to preach? Uh, can they be community group leaders? You know, those are great questions. And they're not the kind of questions that can be simply answered with a yes or a no. At least I hadn't worked with the women that have asked me those questions. <laughs> I want you to know. Quite frankly, they require some explanation. And uh, next, uh, in two weeks from now, I'm going to tackle that particular question. This morning, we're going to address the first, though, and uh, I want you to know, in taking on these two questions, if you heard Martha Baker speak this last week in The Connection, uh, she gave all these colors of personalities. And uh, I want you to know that only a red would take on two questions like this. Right, Martha? <laughs> That's an inside joke, but uh, 
I am the color red. I might be the color purple before this is over. <laughs> so hang on. Now, before we uh, look into this, I think there's a few qualifiers that I would like to uh, mention that might be helpful to you women because uh, this is a broad subject. And uh, really one of the qualifiers is because it's so broad, I'm going to be limited to generalities. And there's always a problem with generalities, isn't it? And that is because you're going to be sitting in your seat with a specific, and you're going to feel that that generality did not meet my point of interest. And I have to confess on the front end that that is going to be the case, that uh, in some cases it, your situation is unique and requires more explanation. I uh, am particularly limited to some degree in speaking to single women. Uh, I'm going to be speaking more to married women uh, just because of the necessity of the broad range of of uh, things that occur in our society concerning them in particular, but it also addresses single women as well. Secondly, I will not be addressing men in this series in the weeks to come. There's a reason for that, not because I'm trying to let men off, but because last year I spent uh, a whole year speaking to the men of our church in the men's fraternity, and all that is on tape, and you can get a hold of that, 24 messages on what it means to be a real man. And uh, this is kind of the counterpart in one broad message. Also, I want you to know that I recognize that much of what I will say to you women, if it is to work, if it's to be satisfying, would require a helpful response from the man or the men in your life to make it successful rather than painful. All of this requires a counterpart, uh, not just for married women, but for single women. It's a whole societal thing if it's going to work well. But also, it's vice versa. For men to be able to do what they need to be able to do, women have a response as well. And that's what we're going to be addressing this morning. And then the last thing that I want you to know, no matter how much I say this, there are still some that uh, hear me grinding an ax. I am not saying that women cannot work, that they cannot have careers. Uh, I will question at points the timing of those careers and the wisdom of those careers in light of God's calling on your life, but it's not to limit you, I promise, hear me, but it is, as I believe the scriptures teach, to liberate you just like the scriptures seek to liberate men into the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised. So those are my qualifiers, and now with those qualifiers, uh, let's explore a secular vision for women that I think is the darling of the media and the entertainment industry, and it's emphatically advocated in most university classroom settings uh, that oftentimes does not allow an alternative voice to be raised. It's a vision which dominates, I think, the, the feminine landscape, at least in theory, and there's not a woman in this room that in some way has not been touched by it. Nicholas Davidson writes, no aspect of modern life has been so inadequately debated as feminism. Every year thousands of books pour off the presses, and yet in contrast, books that present opposing viewpoints are rare. And the lace curtain of networked feminists and sympathizers make sure that those books seem even rarer. Uh, before we look into the tenets of feminism, it might be helpful to to distinguish the difference between two words, concern and the word philosophy. If feminism was a concern by people, a concern with equal rights for women, for fairness, for justice towards women, then I want you to know that all of us here could be radical feminists. In fact, I would say the church would embrace feminism because equal rights and justice and fairness is part of what Christianity is all about since the beginning of time. Most people, in fact, embrace feminism believing it is simply a concern. In fact, it markets itself under the banner equal rights. And quite frankly, who can be against equal rights for women? It's hard to be. But feminism is much more than a concern Feminism is, in fact, a comprehensive humanistic philosophy of life that below the surface of society in the subterranean caverns is actually seeking to reshape and redefine what it means to be a man and a woman and to reshape society at the very core. 
It is both hostile to Christianity, which it, seem, it, seem, it deems to be a social competitor, and yet at the same time it works within the church seeking to remake Christianity and its doctrines after its own likeness for obvious reasons. And it's unfortunate that both men and women oftentimes are fooled into thinking that this feminist ideology is a concern when it is in fact a philosophy that is taking many people to places that they never dreamed of. Indeed, our society has moved in some of those directions ever so subtly without us really thinking through what it all means and where it all is going. And yet with all its utopian promises, I want you to know feminism is at best a social experiment with no guarantees, just like Marxism in the 1890s was a social experiment that people thought would usher in a utopia, but it had no guarantees as well. So what does feminism espouse? Well, on your outline, let me say that first of all, it espouses that equality must replace inequality between the sexes. And I've already mentioned that, and no one would disagree with that. At least I don't think they would, because women can point to volumes of historical data in which cultures and religions even have placed women on an inferior status. For instance, from the Quran, it stated these words, men have authority over women because Allah has made the one superior to the other. Certainly, when equality means justice and fairness and equal worth, the church can embrace feminist to get that for women. But when it's inequality, when there's a sense of inequality, as feminists explain it to be, then we need to probe just a little deeper. So let me look at number two, because there's a second thing that feminism advocates. It advocates sameness must replace stereotypes in the home, the church, and society in general. And in advocating this tenet, feminism asserts that all the differences, other than what you and I would recognize as the obvious physical differences between men and women, all the other differences, like the different roles they play in life and in marriage, the different kinds of work that men and women do, the different ways of relating between men and women, feminists would assert that all those social differences are simply the results of two factors. One, cultural conditioning, and two, male oppression of females. Or as Janet Radcliffe Richards has put it, it is not by nature that women are different so much as it's by contrivance. You know, if you were to ask a feminist, well, what would happen if either of those would be removed? She would say that you will basically have the unisex world of sameness. And in many ways, that to them is the ideal. But you know, science has showed that they shouldn't move so fast in making those kind of assumptions. In fact, attempts to raise young boys and young girls in conditions that are androgynous, that means that they are the same, where they take away the dolls from little girls and the guns from little boys and try to raise them up in some kind of sameness environment, that when you try to raise sons and daughters that way, that they begin to resist that kind of upbringing. And it's raised some serious doubts that the social differences that we see in males and females is, quote, culturally determined. In fact, psychologists found as girls and boys resist this, what I call gender-neutral childbearing, that it's even brought Harvard researcher Dorothy uh, Ulian to warn us that sex role interventions could do serious psychological harm to children. In fact, in some other case studies where they've tried to raise boys as girls and girls as boys in kind of a unisex environment, it actually has documented that there has been harm done. Sociologists Lionel Tiger and Robin Fox sum up what I think is an impressive body of research when they conclude that many of the social characteristics and the roles and the way we see men and women relating to one another in society, they conclude that it's not the result of culture, but, and I'm quoting them, but it is rooted directly in the innate biological endowment of the human species. 
They see the way men act as men and women act as women and the way they choose different kinds of work and different kinds of relating and their different role patterns as a biogrammer within them, a createdness within them, which leads them to do what they do and relate in the ways that they choose to relate. And the point of all this is simply to say the stereotypes we universally see of men and women in every culture are to a large degree the result of our biological natures, not sexist cultural conditioning. And then we could even further conclude, if going against the biological grain does psychological harm to children in their formative years, imagine what would happen to a whole culture that was hell-bent on making men and women the same. You could almost predict it would do psychological harm as well, that you would confuse men and women as to who they are, as to what is a man and what is a woman, that there would be low self-esteem and sexual disorientation, that they would become depressed and neurotic with all kinds of identity problems and struggles relating to one another as men and women in an intimate kind of way. Right? Sounds kind of like our country, doesn't it? A third tenet of feminism is that independence must replace interdependence as a lifestyle. And I want you to know, independence, as I mentioned in the last message, is a tremendous ideal for the feminist. Feminist Germaine Greer speaks of what she calls the middle-class myth of love and marriage. And in her book, she actually calls on women not to enter into socially sanctioned relationships like marriage. Why? Because in her words, she sees such relationships as entanglements of oppression that limit autonomy and personal fulfillment. They restrict, they obligate. And though many feminists would not go so far as Germaine Greer into doing away with marriage, being more independent, more personally in control, with more power and freedom to do as I please when I please it is a celebrated ideal but there is also great danger here. Because the pursuit of independence along that continuum, when it goes into relationships, independence actually blocks intimacy, doesn't it? It stifles interdependency. It rejects responsibility and blames the other as putting something on me and encourages isolation. Certainly you would not expect the institution of marriage to do well in a society where the members entering into these unions, their main goal was to maintain independence rather than surrendering it. And if you look at our society, that is in fact the case. A fourth ideal of feminists is that equal division of labor must replace a sexual division of labor at home and in careers. Everything must be 50-50. The key word is egalitarian. Never mind that in every known society, past or present, the task of men and women consistently break down differently. That there seems to be a natural division of labor between the sexes in every culture of every age. And at a very minimum, according to uh, Stephen Clark from Yale University, Cultures assign men a primary responsibility for the government of larger groupings within a society and to women a primary responsibility for home and the care of young children. Every culture of every age breaks down along those natural divisions of labor. How much and with what intensity? That depends on the different culture. But they tend to move that direction, which makes all of us want to question is Putting women, quote, in the home and putting men at the heads of things, is that some nefarious plot hatched by a bunch of male chauvinists in some prehistoric cave? Or is it just simply natural law at work? Against which we go against the grain when we try to deny it. And then when we try to enforce it, we can only enforce it through law because without law, we tend to relax back into those natural settings again. Fifthly, sexual liberation for the feminist must replace sexual restraint as a value. And if you don't think feminism is, has been a major force in the world, then if you're a parent, you need to talk to your son or daughter. And if you don't have a son or daughter, you just need to talk to a young person. 
and ask them if virginity in their world is a compliment or a curse. Whether in possessing that distinction, you're held up in honor or held up to ridicule and laughter. In fact, just last week I read an article in it was the editorial in USA Today magazine written by Karen DeCrow, who's the former president of the National Organ Organization of Women, in which she chides younger women, especially college-age women, for their return. Even in this age of AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases, she chides them for embracing what she calls, I'm quoting her now, a new puritanicalism. And then she says to them this, and I'm quoting her, the cult of female virginity and purity is part of the second-class citizenship of women. For the feminist, sexual liberation must replace sexual restraint. Sixthly, careerism must replace husband and children as a woman's, and this is the key word here, premier pursuit in life. Women who choose the home as a career are viewed as deceived, oppressed, and retrograde. A career is the vehicle feminine hold on to as the key to liberty and personal freedom. A career gives power, and power transforms into the ability to move from what they consider an awful, dreadful dependency into a liberating independency where I'm free to be me anytime and anywhere. A career is my hedge against male oppression, and to choose the home is, in fact, to betray all that and the feminist ideal. So repugnant is that choice of home that feminist leader Simone de Beauvoir said, no woman should be authorized to stay at home and raise her children. In fact, women should not even have that choice. Precisely because if they have such a choice, too many women will make it. So the goal is, now that may sound humorous, but let me tell you how it translates into real life. The goal then becomes to pass legislation and to place educators in unique places that will encourage more and more women with the choice of career and to demean the choice of home. Tax laws then end up getting passed that favor working women over the stay-at-home mom. Deductions for children stay as they are, archaic from years past, while business deductions and all kinds of those things flourish for women who are moving to the marketplace. Gloria Steinem produces this, let's bring our daughters to work to give them self-esteem. And underneath that, as innocent as that sounds, is a gentle reminder that to leave your daughter at home is low self-esteem. And so the goal is to take away all the choices except one. The choices that enlightened women know and unenlightened women need to know. And that is to get away from the slavery and the retrograde oppression of home and husband. And then finally, religion, history, and scientific data must be reinvented to complement female ideology. Some of you got kind of upset when I tore a page out of my Bible in the early part of this series. When I said, you know, when it says the husband is the head of the wife, that's not what it means. They reinterpret all of that theology to, in some cases, mean just the opposite of what it says. Sexist terminology is to be removed from the Bible. And the reason for that, as I've already pointed out to you, is to move to a sameness world, a unisex world, a world where there are no differences other than the obvious physical ones. Your sons and daughters will be taught at the university about matriarchies in their sociology class. Societies, they'll be told, where women once ruled over men as proof that role patterns are only culturally determined, male oppression, not biologically induced. Never mind the fact that true matriarchies have never existed, at least from a historian's viewpoint. They are non-existent, with no verifiable evidence that even one ever came into being. In fact, Though she had some very feminist tendencies, I'd call upon the queen of anthropology, Margaret Mead, to give a good final explanation in that, sense, uh, in that way, since she had the data before her. And she says this, It is true that all claims made about societies ruled by women are nonsense. We have no reason to believe that they ever existed. Men have always been the leaders in public affairs in general. 
But that won't be a quote you'll hear in the classroom. You'll hear the myth presented as fact. I read in the San Francisco Chronicle about research done by Catherine Ross. I can't help but think by reading it that Catherine has uh, kind of a feminist philosophy on life, but she was a researcher at the University of Illinois. And the title of the article in the paper went this way, and it caught my attention because it was very bold in section one. It said, stay-at-home moms among the most oppressed people in America. And I thought that was interesting because when I read that, we had done a, uh, a polling of our own body. We were looking for other data, but we used a reputable researcher who does polling for politicians and companies and came in and asked all over 100 questions of our body, got 1,000 responses, and then we cross-checked a lot of things. And we weren't really looking at this, but two of the questions on this survey were, uh, list your life, where you feel you are in life satisfaction. And you could list it high, low, medium, wherever. And then tell us what you do. And I remember when this pollster called me back, like I said, we were looking for other data, but he said, hey, here's an interesting fact you ought to know about your church. He said, in doing this polling, we found out that the happiest, most fulfilled people in your body are homemakers. So that caught my attention when I read that. And I went on to read, and she basically lambasts the traditional family. In fact, she says this. She says, any plea to return to the traditional family is a plea to return women to a psychologically disadvantaged place. That was her plea. Now, of course, the happiest women in her research were women who were single and working full-time in the marketplace. But as I went on, as I got to the end of the article, there was one little statement that really caught my attention, and I want to read it to you. It says, most depressed of all. Now, see, I was looking, thinking stay-at-home moms were most depressed. Then I read and reread the title, and it says, uh, stay-at-home moms among the most depressed. But then I read this, most depressed of all were mothers who work and have a hard time getting good childcare. Now, depending on how you want to call it hard time, that takes in a humongous range of women. Now, the reason I say that things are being reinvented to press an ideology is because among most depressed women were the stay-at-home moms, but the most depressed were working mothers. And yet you didn't see the title of the article in bold print, Working Mothers, the Most Depressed in America. And you certainly wouldn't find that in the San Francisco Chronicle, who carries its own ideology of political correctness and incorrectness. Now, I say all that because I just want you to know feminism is a comprehensive philosophy of life. And what I presented is, I think, a fair treatment of some of their basic tenets, though you won't see those flaunted in public. You will just share the banner, equal rights for women. Now, I want you also to know that feminism has had some amazing opportunities to prove itself. Let me give you two real quickly. The first is communism. Now, you say, I don't understand that. But communism was an excellent opportunity for feminism. Communist, communism as a philosophy is an egalitarian, uh, non-sexist philosophy of the working class. The influence of religion that would restrain women was outlawed in the Soviet Union. Women were provided universal daycare and pushed into the marketplace in record numbers. And abortion on demand was freely available. In fact, statistics tell us that the average Soviet women, woman during the time of uh, communism had five to nine abortions in her lifetime. But the irony of all that, now that the curtain is down and we get to peer in, is that without the influence of religion, which I believe influences men to be sensitive to women, without that particular influence, women were anything but elevated. And anybody that knows anything about communist countries know that. They were used. They were put in the lowest forms of the workforce. And on top of that, despite this being an egalitarian society with all its opportunities for women, it was far more patriarchal and oppressive to women than any of our Western democracies. Then there's an even better example in the uh, Israeli kibbutz that was started in the 50s. Originally, the kibbutz closely resembled the society that feminists advocate. It was a social commune. Professional childcare was provided for the children. In fact, the children lived together separate from their parents. Their parents visited them like visiting a dorm. 
But the couples got to live apart and pursue their own interest and own lifestyle. And both the husband and wife were urged to go into the careers of the kibbutz, and they did so very freely. In fact, it led one social researcher in the 50s to say, this is kind of a utopia for men and women. And in fact, the family as we used to know it doesn't even exist within a commune. And that was the conclusion in the 50s. But by the late 60s and 70s, some different changes had taken place naturally. And let me list to you what they are, because the researchers have totally changed their conclusions about the kibbutz experiment. The commune over time, it says, reverted back to male leadership and actually even had started even having larger families in the process. Worse yet, at least from a feminist perspective, it were the females of the commune who led the way in these, in these changes, even demanding them. And when status occupations came their way, oftentimes they were turned down by the women so that they could pursue more time with their families. Now, of course, feminists have no explanation for either of these two experiments, except to say that blame should be part put for the failure of these experiments on the men, or at least to say that the women were deceived and oppressed here. And so we go on in our Western democracies with media and the academic applause that goes with feminism, advocating it to make more converts with their philosophy of real freedom. But is it? Now I want you to turn to Titus, a very politically incorrect letter written by Paul. And as you turn there, I want you to know it's obvious even as you begin this letter, that Paul is dealing with a great deal of controversy. There's a lot of social upheaval here on Crete. There are obvious challenges to the faith going on here, maybe of reinventing the faith to fit something more culturally conducive to the Cretan's lifestyle here. We see that. We get at least a sampling of that when you look in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, For there are many rebellious men here, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning Gentiles, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. And notice how they focus on families in particular. They're upsetting the families. Now, most of you don't know, but in the Roman Empire at this particular time, feminism was at a peak. Women were leaving the home in record numbers. The Roman Empire was collapsing because of their uh, degenerative family structure. But he says they're upsetting families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Look at verse 16. They profess to know God, they're religious, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That's the setting. And then he turns to this young pastor he's left there to lead. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. You don't get any indication at all that what he's about to say is just Paul kind of coming out of his opinion, kind of putting his old Jewish culture on this particular setting. He's, he's talking doctrine here. He says the older men are to be temperate and dignified, sensible, sound in the faith and love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips enslaved to much wine. And then he concludes, and they're to be teaching what is good. And then he turns to them teaching what is good to the younger women. And here we come into not a bold secular vision for women, but I think what is one of the most succinct statements of the brave Christian vision for women in all of Scripture. The older women are to do this. They're to teach what is good. And here's what it is, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Noticeably absent is, and to love yourself. You know, today, both in men's issues and women's issues, I hear people being told, you know, what you really need is just to love yourself more. You'll never find that anywhere in Scripture because the Scripture assumes that you love yourself a whole lot. <laughs> and if you could just get some of that out to somebody else, it would be real helpful. And so the encouragement here into loving your husband and loving your children is not to love you, but instead of self, this is the principle, instead of self, important others. That's the direction of your life. Instead of self, important others. 
You know, Susanna Wesley was a very well-educated woman. She was also the mother of two sons, John and Charles, two sons who later shook two continents with the gospel of Christ. She describes her child-rearing commitment this way. She said, and I'm quoting, No one can, without renouncing the world in a most literal sense, devote 20 years of the prime of their life in hopes of saving the souls of their children, which some women think you can do without much ado. But that was my intention, to give 20 years of my life to it. What a contrast with the statement I found in Ezekiel chapter 16, in which Ezekiel is chiding the whole culture of Israel that's falling apart, that's soon to be judged, and in the midst of these judgments, he turns to women and he says this, Behold, everyone who quotes this proverb will in time quote it concerning you. And they will say, Like mother, like daughter, for you are the daughter of your mother who loathes her husband and her children, and you do the same. Evidently, you get the feeling all the way back in Ezekiel's day, that there was a movement in which women in that day thought it was to their psychological disadvantage to be husband lovers and child lovers. And yet from the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 2 calls a woman a helper. And you don't get any sense that that's a curse, but it is a powerful call that requires from a woman an equally powerful surrender of herself for the sake of others. And once that surrender is made, all kinds of health is unleashed on the recipients of that priceless, invaluable, irreplaceable, nurturing kind of love that only a woman can give this world. And when she gives it, people are better. People are healthier. People are saner. People are holier. But when they don't get it, it unleashes a Pandora's box of evil. When Napoleon asked, what would bring back the prestige of France? Bring her back to greatness. He offered one solution. Give us better mothers. Just give us better mothers. Theodore Roosevelt, in one of his addresses to the nation, says the greatest citizen is not the businessman, it's not the soldier, it's not the researcher. The greatest citizen of our country is the mother. That is a vision for women. A second vision is found in this little word, sensible, in verse 5, which leads me to the principle, instead of super myth, how about common sense? Just being sensible. Remember in the 60s and 70s, the song, I am woman, watch me roar? Yeah. They were going to go out and do everything. And they believed it because it was being offered to them by that select group called feminist. So women flooded into the marketplace. They thought they could handle it with childcare and all that kind of thing. And yet they ended up in the 80s in a humble whine, not a good roar. As one woman said it, I am spread so thin right now, I don't think there's anything left of me. I'm an overworked professional, an overtired mother, a part-time wife, a fair-weather friend. They could have just simply looked to the Soviet Union, whose social scientists knew of the superwoman myth in America, except in the Soviet Union, it was called, and I'm quoting now, the problem of two jobs. Common sense says kids need a full-time mom. Common sense says there is no one better for your children than you. You won't ever be able to hire it. And oftentimes when we look at the super moms of today, starting with our president's wife, we forget that it requires a whole underclass of women to support that and to be the replacement mom. But the best mom is the original copy. Children need full-time moms. Common sense says that. Common sense says a husband needs a woman's support and attention and strength throughout his life. And one of the things I want to tell women all the time is, you don't know how much your husband needs you. And unfortunately, he's probably the kind of guy who's not going to tell you. But he is going to starve. 
Common sense says the home is more than a full-time job when kids are in it. Common sense says you can't do it all. And common sense says, yes, there is a time to have a career. But yes, there's also a time to have kids. That's common sense, not super myth. In verse 5, another vision word is found in the word pure. Instead of sexual liberation, personal purity. And I've already said enough of that in the last message. But let me just say this. Liberation is only a modern concoction to replace an old word, namely immorality. The vision for women, a brave vision for Christian women, is personal purity. Likewise for men, but also for women. Fourthly, there is this phrase that follows in verse 5. It says, workers at home. Now, if that wouldn't light a feminist fire, I don't know what wouldn't. Workers at home. Boy, can't you see them pregnant and barefoot in a cotton smock in a hot kitchen with a fan blowing. Workers at home. Boring. Oppressive. And yet the vision here is for women to have that as a premier pursuit. That's the way I read it here. You know, my grandmother, Catherine, her name was Kate, we called her Mama Kate, left me the legacy, homekeeping hearts. Instead of careerism, homekeeping hearts. I use that phrase because it was a phrase she spelled out with rocks on a concrete slab on her honeymoon in Colorado. And she brought back this four-foot concrete slab, and they put it in the mantle above their fireplace. Now, she was a real interesting woman because she was a very powerful woman. She was well-known all over North Louisiana because of her exploits. She was very well-educated. She, which was unusual in her day, traveled the whole world by steamer, went to all kinds of ports of call. She was the head of a number of cultural and literary clubs in North Louisiana. But if you asked her where her accent was on her life, she would just simply point to the fireplace. Homekeeping hearts. You know, today, if you come into our house and our living room, we pull that slab out of her house, and it's in our fireplace, our mantle over our fireplace. And it's a gentle and silent reminder of the values in our home to not only Sherrod and I, but to our children. We want our daughters to be raised with homekeeping hearts. And we want our sons to find women whose hearts are at home. Jesus put this so well, if I can uh, change it in a sense to reflect women. He says, no woman can serve two masters. For she will either hate the one and serve the other, or she will serve the one and hate the other. Home and career as the primary pursuit of one's life poses exactly the same problem. I love what uh, Joanne Woodward, the actress who married Paul Newman, said about her own life as she reflected back. She said, my career suffered because of my children. And my children suffered because of my career. I've been torn and haven't been able to function fully in either arena. I don't know one person who does both successfully either. And I want you to know, I know a lot about working women. Proverbs 14.1 says it this way, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her very own hands. Instead of careerism, homekeeping hearts. Fifthly, instead of the pursuit of sameness, complementary roles, that is what I think it means when it says being subject to their own husbands. As I see it, the role of the husband in a marriage is to liberate his wife. And you know, feminism's battle cries the liberation of woman. And yet when I look into the scriptures, that battle cries there in Ephesians 5. It says that the part of what man is all about as male is to set apart a female, to embellish her, to help her, to assist her, to serve her, so that when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm quoting now Ephesians 5, he can present her in all her glory. I understand that to mean that she became all that she was meant to be in terms of the calling of God on her life. But I want you to know, in an opposite vein, the role of the woman is to help empower her husband 
to responsible leadership. I think that's why that phrase, being subject to your own husbands. Because it requires of a woman that she relinquish herself to a support role. Not to a role of inferiority, but to a complementary support role that will empower his leadership and responsibility. Now, I could say a lot more about that, but since I've already said it in the book that I wrote, Rocking the Rolls, and I have it at the end of your outline, for some of you who haven't read that, that might be a helpful book. I'm not trying to push a book, but that might be a helpful book to, to, to flesh that out in a lot greater specifics for you, especially if you're a young couple. So let me move on from there to the last phrase of verse 5 where it says that the Word of God might not be dishonored. That vision phrase paints for a Christian woman this principle. Instead of reinventing the Scripture, submitting to the Scripture. If you want a number of books that will tell you what I just read is not applicable to women today, I'll give them to you. If you want theologians who will say this is archaic in its uh, admonitions for a modern world, I can give those people to you. You can find someone who will tell you this doesn't apply. But I want you to know, listen to the final statement, that the Word of God might not be dishonored. Does that sound cultural to you or transcultural? Something that is a brave vision for women living in this day in a controversial setting when families were being torn unto, but also for our day when the exact same thing is taking place. That's why at the end of this passage, as Paul sums up this little exhortation to Timothy, look at verse 15, I mean to Titus, look at what he says to Titus in verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove, now listen, with all authority. Let no one disregard you in the matter. What we've seen here is an abiding authoritative text, I believe, for Christian women in any culture, in any historical setting. For sure, the response being called for in Titus 2 is not reinventing the text or reinterpreting the text or declaring the text culturally obsolete. But the call of Titus 2 is in submitting to the text and embracing these values as the essence of femininity. It's not all that a woman does, but it's the core of defining who she is and how she's to live before God. Now this morning, I've set before you two systems. I've set before you two philosophies of life. One is for the bold. One is for the brave. And now there come some hard questions. The obvious ones would be this. Which set of values, as a woman, I want to speak just to the women here, which set of values do you believe you should pursue for your own life? Which ones of these will preserve your life, will bring you fulfillment in your life? Which set of values for you moms are you seeking to instill in your daughters? And how practically are you going about doing that? Is she being raised up to respond to a divine call or to yearn in her heart for a secular career? If she doesn't get, she's missed being me. Why aren't more women standing up for these truths? Where are the older women that you see in verse 3 instructing the younger women to avoid these utopian ideals that will lead them into harm's way? Where are the Christian women standing up, holding up the banner, saying, no, 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 here's the essence of femininity. You really want to be free. You want to be liberated. Here is where it's at. Where are those women? Where is the call to Christian femininity to counteract the call to secular feminism? I don't have the answers to those questions. I just simply pose them because the reality is only you can bet your life in one or the other direction. And only you will be a cure or a curse for the next generation. Like mother, like daughter. I want to close with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot in her article, The Essence of Femininity. 
And uh, ladies, if you would like the whole article, it's back in the resource table as you leave. But here's what she says. She writes, A Christian woman's true freedom lies on the other side of a very small gate. Humble obedience. But that gate leads out into a largeness of life undreamed of by the liberators of the world. To a place where the God-given differentiation between the sexes is not overlooked. In fact, it's celebrated where inequalities are not seen as essential are seen as essential to the image of God for it is in male and female that is in male as male and female as female not as two identical and interchangeable halves that the image of God is best manifested to gloss over these profundities is to deprive women of the central answer to the cry of their own hearts who am i no one but the author of the story can answer that cry. And we find not only the author of the story, but the story right here. Let's pray together. Father, th these times are indeed dangerous times for all of us. There are many voices that are seeking to show the way. I thank you for the privilege here this morning of standing before these people and declaring what your word says is the way. Certainly, Father, we would confess that these are ideals. And I know that there are many women who would like to ask questions off of these. But what about this? What, what about that? Those are good questions and they need to be answered. Certainly there are other women here who hear these truths and desire to acknowledge them, to have them a part of their own life, but they look at their counterpart and they see for them to do what I've just talked about would be painful, hard, because their counterpart makes it hard. Father, in all of this, we're thankful that what you have asked of us as man and woman is not that we're perfect, but simply that our heart's desire is to make progress. And I thank you that we can call upon you when our heart is filled with truth and faith to pursue these things. And as we do, we will discover that our faith has turned this truth into reality. And this reality has borne the blessed fruit of righteousness rather than left an awful taste of deceit. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our church, that you would keep all of us from a place of saying extreme statements like women could never work or women could never do this, but yet pursue the ideals you have set forth to make male and female after your very image. We thank you for truth in a controversial day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.